You're listening to TIP. There's no way around the deposit borrow thing. Like that's just part of the way banking works. And so that's where if you can flip it, I call it the banking quadrant. You know, everyone's a depositor. Some people can be borrowers. Almost nobody is the banker and almost nobody is the shareholder. And so if I can be all four of those, then I make money by depositing, borrowing, and doing smart things with that. I make money organizing and arranging those loans with the arbitrage. And I make that dividend as a shareholder. On today's episode, I bring back Jerry Feta, who's the founder and CEO of Wealth Dynamics, which is a financial firm that provides education and helps people across the US and now Canada build wealth and achieve greater financial freedom. During this episode, I bring Jerry back to discuss his unique approach to building wealth, which centers around you becoming your own bank, making your money work smarter for you by using the same framework and method that is used by the wealthy and the traditional banking system. We dive into this strategy in more detail. He answers some listener questions and concerns on the strategy and the mistakes that can happen if you don't set up the policy properly. Jerry also shares the different ways that he uses this framework to invest and some examples of investments he made during 2022, including secure private lending and seller finance real estate deals. We dive into how you can invest in this space with no prior real estate experience and without having to be actively involved in the properties, which I think is one of the biggest hurdles for investors starting out in this space. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jerry. There's something to say about being more in control of all aspects of your money and using methods that are a bit unconventional, but ones that are utilized by the top 1%. And the big reason I like his strategy is because it doesn't change in down markets or up. It's not tied to the stock market and it just offers a different approach and a potential diversifier to also investing in equities. So with that all said... I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Jerry Feta. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Jerry Feta. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you so much for coming back on. Last time you were on, we talked all about how to build wealth using your earn, save and invest framework. And so I really wanted to bring you back on to talk more about your strategy for building wealth, because it's one that doesn't necessarily involve investing in the stock market. And I love investing in the stock market. We talk about that a lot on the show. I think it's one of the best ways to build long term wealth. But I think it's also great to learn about other methods to make money as well. And so I was hoping you could start out by talking a bit about your strategy and your preferred way of investing and building wealth. I did stocks for a while. I was a financial advisor. I was licensed here in the US. And so I'm very familiar with that that area. And that is, you know, for the average person, that is kind of where they invest. And what I like to talk about and what I love that we're going to discuss today is the other options that are out there. For me, when I invest, I'm big on words. I look at where the word invest comes from. Um, and so the etymology, the root of that word, it actually means to clothe your capital. You know, I look at that, I think about, okay, if I'm wearing clothing, I'm picking clothing that I like, things that I understand, things that fit me, things that fit what I'm going to use them for, things that are vital, probably going to buy, you know, underwear before I buy a Gucci belt, 
And then I'm also picking things that probably aren't overpriced. And I can apply all of that with investing as well. And so for me as an investor, I really like tangible investments and I like non-correlated investments. I'm not big on the ups and downs that can come with not just stocks, but really a lot of different markets have that. I try and isolate myself out of that and I try and have things that I can really control. And then I really do focus on you know income producing investments. I'm really big into real estate. I'm really big into private lending. I do things like leasing out gold and silver for income as well. Just things that I know it's there, it's tangible, it's got that intrinsic value and it's going to give me an income stream. And I want to dive into that a bit later with you today, how we can apply some of those And I think there is something to be said about, like you mentioned, investing in things that you can control more so because as we saw this year with the stock market, many retirees probably had to push back their plans a couple of years because of how bad things dropped. Even if you had that perfect portfolio where it was very safe, we saw the drawdown in bonds was just as bad. So that would have put a lot of people back and these events are never foreseen. And I still think at the end of the day, investing in the stock market is amazing, but it comes with risks. And the more we can diversify or learn about different strategies, I just think it's so useful. And I love to take a blended approach because it just protects yourself as an investor. I really want to start out by talking about your method to do this because for our listeners that missed your last episode and kind of just to set the stage for today's conversation, can you talk about your sacred account and how we can use that to become our own bank? So this is one of my favorite strategies and this is probably something I use basically more than anything else in my life with my finances. And so the sacred account, what it is, it's actually a specifically designed form of high early cash value, dividend paying whole life insurance. And it's not the kind you usually would hear about or use. A lot of agents themselves don't actually know what this is and don't know how to design it. I'll give you a really good example is actually funny enough, it was about a month or two ago, I made a very experienced financial services agent send me an email and he's like, I don't know what you're doing. I think it's illegal. I'm calling the state insurance regulators on you. And I answered the email. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And so what it came down to is when I showed him like the sacred account, it's on an illustration in the numbers to him. And he'd been in the industry for a long time. He had never seen it before. So he'd seen my marketing content talking about it and how it works. And he was just like, that, that's a unicorn. That doesn't exist. There's no way it must be illegal. And that's an insurance professional. So the average individual, you can think they don't know as much even about insurance in general. They're probably never going to hear about a concept like this. Really, the way that it works is, you know, you have a life insurance policy set up with very high cash value. You know, with life insurance, you've got your death benefit. And then you've also got the ability to put in a cash savings on a component into a policy if you design a right. And so we're trying to maximize the amount that we can put into that cash savings, minimize the insurance costs and design it correctly so that when we do this, if I put in, let's say a hundred thousand and I'm going to invest in real estate. That 100,000 will grow at three to 5% per year tax free. And I can actually borrow against it. It's still going to grow while I borrow against it. My net effective interest cost is maybe one to 3% if I set this up correctly. And I'm still making that three to 5% while I use my money to then go invest in the real estate. And so it's a way of double dipping. I can do that arbitrage strategy between the interest rates and earn the profit on the real estate and on the money in my sacred account. And then basically continue to recycle that back through and repeat. That was a great overview. And I want to dive into a few specific listener questions in a second on that. But first, I just want to know if you can explain how this strategy differs from a traditional savings, investing, borrowing framework from a bank. And why do you think this strategy is better? 
With banks, I mean, when you think about the average person, right, we get our incomes and and after taxes come out here in the US, after Wall Street takes the 401k contribution, the rest of the money goes directly into a bank account. And your listeners are maybe more familiar with this, but the average person is completely unaware. There's a system called fractional reserve banking where the bank doesn't actually keep the money in the vault. So they can loan out or invest 100% of the deposits that they're receiving. What is kind of funny with that is when you look at the balance sheet of banks here in the United States, there are about 3,000 banks that actually use the sacred account concept. It's called bank-owned life insurance. Same exact design, same exact everything. And so the collective number of that represents about 20% of the reserves on their tier one capital for their just their assets and liabilities. And that's a total of about $200 billion collectively. Bank of America, for example, they have about $22 billion in life insurance cash value, more than they're actually putting in real estate. And so it's kind of a middleman. When you give money to a bank, you are putting it with a glorified middleman. They're not just keeping it in the vault. It'd be kind of like if I put my car in a garage and I found out that they rented it out on Turo while I wasn't looking and didn't pay me anything. You know, They put it at risk and then sure, I can get it back out when I need it, but I kind of want to know that my car was put on Turo. And that's what's happening with our money with banks. Where the difference is on the sacred account, You know, the sacred account is guaranteed to grow. To some degree, you have that with a bank, but it's not very high. You know, Here in the US, the average savings account is paying about 0.24% per year. And that's going to take a very long time to really amount to anything. The sacred account is also guaranteed against loss. And you do technically have that with a bank. You have FDIC insurance. Again, here in the US, that's dramatically underfunded. It's about 2% of what's needed to cover all deposits in the banking system is actually there. And it's also taxpayer funded. So it's ever needed and then we have to cash in on it. I'm kind of paying for my own losses through that pass-through. So that's another thing is the sacred account is guaranteed against loss contractually because the money is actually there and it's allocated and they do have insurance for insolvency protection with the actual insurance company themselves. But it's very different than saying we loaned it all out. And so because of that, we went insolvent versus, hey, it's actually here when you need it. I would rather have it allocated than not. That's a key difference. You know, it is protected from taxation. The piddly interest rate I'm going to get on my savings in the bank, I will pay taxes on here in the US if it's over $10. They're going to take the taxes out as well. And then I've got, you know, protection from creditors, protection from lawsuits. It protects my privacy. It's a one way contract between me and the insurance company. Then I do have the ability to borrow against my deposits. and, And that growth comes from me being made an owner in the insurance company. That's that dividend. It's the profit that they're sharing with me. So there's a lot of that that I just can't get with the banking system. I can't get those types of protections. I can't get that kind of growth. I don't get that kind of, I guess, mutual benefit. I'm not a big fan of of large financial institutions, as you know. So I think the way that I like to navigate that is if we're partners, they're not going to do anything to me that they're not willing to do to themselves as well. And so that profit sharing, that dividend, it means that they want to make money and they're incentivized to, and it helps me when they do that too, versus... They're going to make XYZ decision with my money and I'll pay a fee or a commission, but there's no, they're not tied to my outcome really in the sense that we're actually mutually vested. So that's, those are some of the key differences there. In a funny way, when someone does deposit money in a bank, Rebecca, and then they get a loan for a car or a mortgage or a house, they kind of are borrowing themselves and other people's money, right? Cause that's deposits the bank's loaning out. So if I have 300 grand in the bank and I go to the bank and I take out a mortgage, in a weird kind of a way, I basically borrowed my own money from them and I'm paying them a lot more than they're paying me. Or I borrowed the money from some random person who deposited their money and they're making 0.24% as well. 
there's no way around the deposit borrow thing. Like that's just part of the way banking works. And so that's where if you can flip it to where, you know, the, I call it the banking quadrant, you know, everyone's a depositor. Some people can be borrowers. Almost nobody is the banker and almost nobody is the shareholder. And so if I can be all four of those, then I make money by depositing, borrowing and doing smart things with that. I make money or organizing and arranging those loans with the arbitrage. And I make that dividend as a shareholder. I really like the framework. And after you came on the first time, it's something that I've been looking into a lot. I am wondering, though, because it goes back to you talking about how you like to invest and do things that are in your control. And this is just one more avenue where your money is in your control and you have control of all aspects of those things, the savings, the investments, what you're doing with your money. But I'm wondering, why do you think there's such a negative connotation associated with using life insurance to do this? Because I saw a couple, I've just seen that generally kind of negative comments surrounding it. I actually had those myself when I started. I worked with Dave Ramsey. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dave Ramsey, but he's totally against whole life insurance. I was an endorsed local provider for him for investing in like eight different states. And so I was all about buy term life insurance, max out your Roth IRA, put everything into the get the 401k match. And whole life insurance was one of those topics where I had all of the reasons not to do it. And I was like, it's a scam. It's a terrible product. Da 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 da. And so that was, I was passionate about it because I would see it and I didn't, you know, I was trying to help people with their finances and I would see these really badly designed policies where agents I knew were getting paid basically the first three years in commissions. You know, the premiums that are going in are going to pay the agent and the company. There's very little growth, very little cash value. And so when someone told me about this, I was like, there's no way that exists. You know, it was kind of like the guy that emailed me. I was like, that's impossible. And so when I saw a correctly designed illustration, I literally was like, I don't, I don't know how I'm looking at this. Like, this can't be real because it was designed correctly. And so that negative connotation comes from a couple of things. The first thing is a lot of times people will hear this and then they'll say, good, I want to do this. It involves life insurance. Let me go contact my life insurance agent. Well, that individual probably doesn't know how to design this, right? So I learned this from uh, an agency that specifically worked with corporations and large banks and institutions. They knew how Bank of America wanted their, their bank on life insurance designed and they knew how to duplicate that. That's very different than the normal, ordinary run of the mill life insurance policy you're going to buy. So if you get a whole life insurance policy from like a normal, let's say you just go down the road to the agency that, that everyone knows about. Generally speaking, you're going to have zero dollars in your cash value for the first three years. You won't break even for maybe 15 or 20 years. The internal rate of return is very poor. And a lot of the companies discourage against borrowing. They don't want borrowing because they would rather have that money in-house. In they can invest it and keep it and grow it. So there's a lot that goes against that. The biggest piece though, Rebecca, is that the agents, in order to design this, obviously they have to have the technical skill and know-how, but they have to be willing to take about a 300% pay cut. We're minimizing insurance costs, which means we're minimizing commissions. And so if you just think about it from a sheer business model standpoint, at the individual agent level, that takes someone that's ethical enough to say, I'm going to make significantly less money to do the right thing for the client, knowing that the client probably doesn't know any better. I could probably tell them, yeah, this is it and sell it to them and I would make a lot more and they wouldn't be, you know, they'd be none the wiser on that. You have to have a really ethical agent that is trained their skill. But then from an agency standpoint, if you think about if there's an office and they have a bunch of agents, they're not going to go out usually and say, go sell our least profitable product. You know, they're going to say, hey, we want you to sell the thing that brings the most profit in for the agency. And so there's not really incentive from a training standpoint and a sales management standpoint, standpoint for these organizations to push that. And then the companies, they're really kind of, they're, they're going to design whatever you ask them to. So if you go to 
you know, a New York Life or a Mass Mutual or for you guys in, in Canada, you go to a Manulife, they're not going to say, hey, we, we do the sacred account. They're going to say, hey, we do whole life insurance. Your agent needs to tell us what it needs to look like. And we'll design an issue, whatever your agent asks for. And that agent's only going to design what they're trained for. And they're only going to design what they're willing to, to, to communicate to the client about based on if they're making commission and what that looks like. And so as you can see, there's a lot that has to be aligned with the best interest of the client. The company's got to be the right company. And it's it's about 1% of policies that actually come out. Like if you're doing a whole life insurance sacred account, they come out properly designed. That is probably where a lot of that negativity comes from. Another part of it too is on the back ends, you know, there is more control and with control comes responsibility. And so if somebody doesn't get the help on how do I take a policy loan? How do I pay myself back? How do I invest the proceeds? Then it kind of turns into a bad experience. And so that's another part that the agent really needs to take responsibility for is I've helped this person buy a policy. Now let me help them use it correctly and, and have a good experience with it on the back end. And I guess in general, the insurance agency then, like you mentioned, they have no incentive to want to really push this product. And if they knew that you were borrowing the money to use it in this framework, would that, could they, I guess, ever say no to your request to borrow against your loan? So they can't really say no, but they can slow the process down. And so an example of this is we my company, we help clients set this up all over the US. We actually just opened one, uh, an office in Canada. That's a cool thing since we last talked. But basically, you know, we're independent. And so we'll look at, based on what the client's trying to, to do, out of all the companies we can work with, who's the best match? And so we recently had a company that we had to take off of our roster because it's not that they weren't doing loans, they were discouraging it. They were like, we can make more money elsewhere. And so when someone requests a policy loan, we're going to take longer and we're going to give you a little bit more pushback. And for me, I don't like that. I want to, if it's, if it's a loan and I'm doing this, I just want to be able to take it quickly. They were really big on in the first year. They're like, especially in the first year, we want to make sure that the loans aren't coming out immediately. Those are things you've got to look at. And again, that's why it's so important to have the right team with this so that you have somebody that knows that. And if it does come up, they have a way to help handle it. So that's kind of what I would say there. They can't really hold it and they're not going to be, they don't care too much what you're using it for as long as you're not funding terrorism and drugs, right? They're usually like, use it for whatever you would like to use it for. Okay. And I want to ask you about, I had a couple questions come in from listeners. Well, maybe there were just more comments. And one was that this is one of the most highly commissioned financial products and that the supposed safe cash portion growth of 3 to 5% that you mentioned is dependent on the stock market. So they were kind of just these, it sounded kind of a negative comment on those two things. I'm wondering what your response would be to those concerns. So on the first one, you know, they're actually right. It is one of the most highly commissioned products. And that's, that's why you have to make sure you've got the right agent designing it. We want to minimize the insurance costs. And so that means that once we've done that, it no longer is one of the most highly commissioned products. And so that's, that's where if an agent doesn't know better, or maybe they know better and they want to make more money regardless of what the client wants, they might just sell it the way that they want to sell it to make that higher commission. And that's, that's really something that unfortunately, like you can't mitigate that out other than just knowing better as a consumer, knowing that, no, 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 this is what it's supposed to look like. And here's what I should be watching for when I go have that conversation with an agent. And when they minimize those insurance costs, you know, the agent does make quite a bit less. So those are things you'd look at on the illustration. Like when you do a contribution in year one, you should have 70 to 90% of what you put in there available for loans immediately. 
And if you don't see that, then you know that the agent designed it with lower rates, you know, on, on or sorry, lower liquidity, so they get higher rates on their commission. And that's an easy one to look for. So that's kind of what I would say there. And on the stock market, that's on, on a whole life policy. That's actually not true. I think maybe they're thinking of indexed universal life, which is kind of roughly based on the stock market. With a correctly designed whole life strategy, your growth is coming from a guaranteed interest rate that's issued by the company. And then anything beyond that is actually coming from dividends the company pays out. And that's based on the growth of the insurance company that's based on their profitability. So that's it's actually non-correlating. You know, The stock market can have down years and you're still making dividends and it still continues regardless. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. That was really helpful to hear you clear those things up on the, I guess, the savings rate. So you mentioned three to 5%. Is that standard then for the average policy or when would a listener see perhaps a different rate of return? 
Three to 5% should be about the standard. And that's based on compounding annual growth rate. So we look at what's the total cumulative uh, contribution over the life of that policy and for how many years was that. And then we plug that into a compounding annual growth rate calculator. And that tells us, you know, it was three or it was four or it was five. So it's usually going to be in that range. From a year to year basis, there's going to be the net internal rate of return. Right. And so the way that that's going to look is in the earlier years of the policy, it's going to be a little bit lower and it climbs each year as the policy grows. You could actually see higher than 5% on a net internal rate of return basis. You might see six in some years. You might even see seven, depending on what dividends do. In the initial years, you could see lower than three for the first few as you're capitalizing the policy and building it up. So that's another important thing to look at is what is the compounding annual growth rate? And then what is that net IRR? For me personally, I focus more on the compounding annual growth rate because I'm not looking at it from any one year. I'm looking at it as a, as a cumulative financial strategy and I'll continue to borrow against it and use it. And so what happens in one year doesn't matter to me as much as what happens throughout the life of that strategy. So when you build this policy, it's not written in the agreement that this is your, because you mentioned it as a guaranteed rate. So that's not written in the contract, what your rate of return will be. It fluctuates year to year then. Good question. So there's two components to look at. There is a guaranteed rate. And so that guaranteed rate is usually going to be a gross rate of like maybe three to 4%. And that is contractually guaranteed. When I say gross rate, because there will be some insurance costs and expenses that come out. And so they're, they're, your net will be a little bit lower. And then you've got your dividend, which is non-guaranteed, but they have paid dividends for over 150 years in a row. So it's like, it's not guaranteed, but it's something that they've done for a very long time and haven't missed a beat on. So on your contract, you know, you can actually run the illustration. And this is another thing to know as a consumer, you can look at what's the guaranteed column say. So if I never earn a dividend, what's going to happen? And then what does the non-guaranteed column say? If the dividends are earned like they have been over the last 150 years, what does that look like? So that's kind of from a contractual standpoint, what you should be paying attention to. Generally speaking, for me, I look at the, the, the non-guaranteed with the dividend, just because I know that even though that's not guaranteed, when you do something from the civil war through the COVID crisis of 2020 and don't miss a beat, I mean, it's pretty solid. And then the other thing you mentioned last time is that you like to use this account then as a savings vehicle because it also earns the 3 to 5% plus dividends as you are building your cash value. And then you can choose to withdraw that or take a loan on your policy. And I guess I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about using this as a savings account instead of using it as a bank account. Because one thing that I can just think of on the top of my head is that with a bank account, savings account, I'm usually, I need that money to buy things, consumable products or whatever. When I take the money out of my savings to pay for things, I'm not penalized in any way. But with a sacred account, if you withdraw cash, then it would cause a tax consequence and then perhaps other things as well. So can you talk a little bit about that? Totally. So that's a good question. And this is one that I get a lot is we mentioned the banking and the saving feature of it. And so what I would clarify on this is it's not going to be for living expenses, right? So for me personally with living expenses, I keep a maximum of one month of cash in the bank. That's the only thing I will give the banking system. And that's because I do need some money there to pay for, you know, groceries and gas and whatever. You know, to be totally honest with that, I'm going to use a cashback rewards credit card to pay it off every month. And that's just where I'm going to flow through my normal expenses. Now, anything that's like, you know, I'm saving up for a large purchase or an emergency came up, 
that's where I would borrow against my sacred account. And it would be the equivalent of me taking a loan from a bank to pay for that, except for I am the bank, I'm earning dividends and interest, and I'm going to pay myself back. So that's kind of what I would look at. If you did want to withdraw money, like let's say the car broke down and I was like, I need to go buy you know a new part and that's 1200 bucks. And then I don't want to take a policy loan. You can withdraw your cost basis. So you're only going to be taxed on your profit. And so if you're like, I put in 10,000, that 10,000 you pay taxes on already before you put it in. And so you could pull that cost basis out and say, I'm going to use that for the repair. Then I don't have to pay taxes on that portion. Now, if you had 10,000 and you grew it and you pulled off 15, then you would pay taxes on the five additional. So that's kind of what I would look at there. But even with the car repair, I would still do a policy loan because I'm going to make profit on that loan and I would just pay myself back. And that is a function of saving. So it, it forces me to do more of a good thing. If I increase my savings rate via a loan repayment, at the end of that, I've got more money saved than I would have otherwise. That's super interesting. So you can withdraw without tax consequences. It's just the profit. And I guess you talked about, so the cash accumulating, it can be accessed by the policyholder through withdrawals or a policy loan. I guess, can you talk a little bit more about maybe the pros and cons of withdrawing cash to use something versus using a policy loan to fund an investment opportunity? So the cash, you know, if I do a withdrawal or a distribution, the biggest thing that's happening there is I potentially, depending on how I'm designed on my policy, I'm potentially taking the money out and it's no longer growing. And so that's really where the loan function comes in. You know, taking a loan, it does obviously shelter you from taxes. A loan is not income, it can't be taxed, but it also allows the asset to still be there. And so for me as an investor, those are two things I hate the most is losing an asset paying taxes. So the loan helps me avoid both of those things. The asset's still there growing because I collateralized it rather than distributing it. And then I did avoid the taxes. For me personally, there's not really ever a scenario where I would do a distribution just because I'm always going to want to keep the asset there growing. I'm always going to want to avoid the taxes. And I'm always going to want to save more money. So I'm totally fine paying myself back on a loan and, and increasing my savings, personal savings rate by whatever that payment is. Then you mentioned one of the benefits of doing it this way and taking out a loan from yourself instead of a bank is that you typically get a lower rate. But I'm wondering, what is this rate generally tied to then? And has it gone up with the short-term borrowing rate over the past year? So the rates are pretty stable. The rate is going to be pretty close to the dividend actually with the insurance company. So if the interest rates were to come up, for example, generally the dividend paid out comes up as well. So if you go back and you look in the 1980s, the dividend rate on a whole life policy, you could get 12 and 13 and 14%. Now we were also in a very high interest rate environment during that time too. So it kind of is like it's going to, it's, it's analogous. It's going to continue along whether you go up or whether you go down, they'll stay pretty close. And the reason why it's cheaper is if I do it correctly, I'm actually being paid to borrow my own money because I always have more profit on that dividend versus what my cost of interest is. Even if I was extended a 0% loan by a bank, you know, if I'm earning four, let's say, and I can borrow at two and I'm making a positive 2% profit spread, if we put that on a scale of high, high interest rates, low interest rates, and a zero in the middle, I would rather take a loan where I'm being paid 2% than take a loan that costs me zero. Zero is better than paying, but earning 2% is better than zero. It's such an interesting strategy. And I guess the one thing is you do have to put as much money in though as you expect to, I guess, potentially loan out because you can only loan against, is it 70 to 90%? 
Yep, exactly. Exactly. You've got to contribute into it. So if I wanted to borrow, let's say 80,000, I would have to put in at least 80,000. If I'm doing it, you know, in year one, like the very first year, I'm probably going to put in a hundred to be able to pull out, you know, maybe 80 or 90 or whatever that number is. Over time, I can borrow my, cause I'm contributing my policy grows. I can borrow much more than I put in just because it's, but it's still based on growth. It's based on here's your principal, here's your profit, and you can borrow the total of that. So that is a thing to consider. And, and for me, from a consumer standpoint, it really reinforces good decision making. The wealthy, they tend to buy assets first and then borrow against those assets to buy more assets. For the middle and lower class, we were taught borrow money to buy the things, like have, have the, the loan first instead of the money to buy the thing first. And so if you flip that and it's like, well, I want a $30,000 car. So I'm going to have $30,000 first, then put that in my account, then get the car. That's a better sequence. You know, I actually have the asset. I have solvency. It's going to be growing for me versus I don't have the asset. And now I'm in debt with the bank. I'm giving up more income. I'm paying more interest. And that actually slows me down financially. You know, and where that might vary or be different is once you do get into, you know, maybe real estate investing, for example, you would maybe want to do a mortgage, right? Because that's going to give you the ability to leverage on a property. And the difference there being is that property pays for itself. If you do it right, it's going to pay itself down and off over time. But even then, you could argue, well, let's take the down payment from the sacred account. You know, let's double dip and do both of those things. Now, I kind of want to get into some examples of how you have used this method in the sacred account to build wealth. Do you have any examples even from 2022 of what you did? Yeah, I do a lot of things with mine. So one of the things I did is, is I bought a, a heavy vehicle. Here in the US, there's a, a tax code section 179. And it basically allows you to purchase a vehicle for business purposes. If it weighs over 6,000 pounds, you can write up, off up to 100% of the purchase price for business usage. For me, what I did is I did, um, it was an Audi e-tron. So I think it was 6,700 pounds. This, I took a policy loan borrowed against it. We used that strategy. And then you get the tax deduction as well. So you're getting a write-off. You're getting you know, the car there. Obviously, the car is paid off. And oddly enough, the value went up because there's a shortage on cars. Usually you buy a car and two years later, it's worth less. The value has gone up a little bit over time, which is nice. I don't expect that to be a forever thing, but it's kind of it's kind of neat to see that on a car. And so that's something where the car is there as a paid off asset at the end. Like, you know, say it's a five-year term. I'm at the end, I've got a paid off car. I've been saving money this whole time. The principal grew while I was still using it. So I've got more money in my sacred account than I started. And then I've also got the tax savings, you know, whatever that dollar amount was that I reduced in taxes. So that's a really cool one for business owners. You know, another easy one is investing, right? So I'm a very big fan of private lending and also seller finance. So I've done quite a few real estate deals where I borrow from my sacred account to put that in the real estate deal. And I, I do double dip on the returns. That kind of is a function of, you know, I've got that dividend rate. I've got the interest rate on my investments. I'm actually having the income from the investment repay the loan for me. So that cash flow coming in just pays the policy loan back. And then I can recycle that loan and, and pull another one out again when I'm ready. So that's another fun one. And then probably one of my favorite ones, just because it's such a little, it's a normal thing everyone does is I self-financed my couch. You know, I was buying a new couch for my place and I was looking and I was like, I, I could spend three grand cash and lose three grand future value, or I could take a policy loan for three grand, buy the couch with that, you know, buy the set with that, and then pay myself back. And so I did that. And that's one that I mentioned that because everyone has to buy furniture. 
we did the same example with Christmas shopping. Like if you're going to spend, you know, between travel and food and all the stuff, let's say three grand for Christmas shopping, take a policy loan and do that. And then just pay yourself back over the next 12 months. And now each year you have that funded and it's also growing for you in the future rather than paying it to Amex or Visa because you charged it on a card or buying it with cash and then never having the ability to have grown that three grand into the future. Yeah, it is interesting because at first I was thinking that it's never good to use this to just spend on things that aren't investments, just consumables. But it does make sense because a lot of the time now there's so many companies where you can pay installments and there's that little fee or interest rate that you pay every month by just paying little by little, even for couches and stuff like that. So it does make so much more sense to be your own bank and borrow against your own money and then still have that value built as you go. And so I guess the one thing I did want to touch on private lending a little bit with you more today, because I have been really interested in this ever since you mentioned last episode, how you were big on secure private lending. And you mentioned you had a deal that could get 12% per year, I believe. And so that's a higher um, return than the average stock market return. And so I'm just wondering what all goes into that. And I guess, is that an average return or what dictates the return you get for these private lending deals? This is probably my favorite way to invest. I love, I'm a big fan of passive income. And so for me, like just to kind of start the conversation out, when I was a financial advisor, we were very big on building up the nest egg, you know, build up your nest egg and you turn 60 or 65, you start drawing off of that. And so for me, part of my story is I was my mom's financial advisor. Retirement age is 60. She got cancer at 60, died six months later. So she never got to use that. And I saw that whole plan unravel you know, right in front of me with someone I loved very much. So as a young guy and I'm learning about this, I was like, that didn't work at all. Like that, Everything that I thought was supposed to happen didn't. That's where I really started looking at like, what are the other options? And I started seeing people that were I wouldn't even call it retirement. They're just, they're, they have passive income from investments. They don't have to trade time for money anymore. And it's not tied to anything that can go up and down. So from month to month, they know they have steady, stable income. They know they have a real asset. There's not a lot of interference or manipulation that can happen with that asset. And that's where I kind of fell in love with the idea of like hard assets and tangible assets. Now, real estate was the obvious idea. I was like, okay, well, most of these guys are doing real estate. What I could never get my head around wanting to do was I never wanted to be a landlord. I did not want to be collecting rent checks. I did not want to be fixing toilets. I didn't want to be dealing with property managers. That all seemed like a hassle. And I would also see like here in the US, a lot of people will use subsidized loan programs to get started in real estate. So the first two or three or four are super easy to get into because you can put 0% down or 3% down. There becomes a certain point where you use those up. And so I could count almost one for one people that I would see where after four loans, they're done for the next five years because now they have to save up enough money for a real down payment. And so I didn't like that either. So I started looking at like, what are the wealthy doing? And that's the question I always ask is what are the wealthy actually doing? Historically, like when I study that, the answers are always clear. And so I had to again look at banks and I was like, banks get passive income from real estate. They own none of it. And it's super scalable. They're all around the country and they do it through mortgages. Like, so as long as I have a property with a mortgage and I'm earning interest income, that's the same thing banks are doing. And I can do that in literally any state in the country. I don't have to worry about property management. I don't have to worry about landlording. And if that house payment doesn't come through, ironically enough, it's actually in most states in the US easier to evict someone on a, on a mortgage than it is a rental contract. 
all of the pros were there. And the con was, you know, okay, well, what does the return look, look like? And what's the equity? Because obviously, if I'm a lender, I'm not getting potentially the appreciation. That's where I found seller finance real estate. And so we work with um, a network here in the US. And actually, this is um, something we offer in Canada as well. The properties are in the US, but Canadians can invest. And you actually are buying, like physically, you're, you're buying the property, you're on the title. But we're going and working with banks and we're basically purchasing inventory from their foreclosure and auction list. So these are very low end properties. They're typically in the, the average investor when they purchase one is probably paying 45 to maybe 50,000 for a home. So it's very cheap to get into. And then what's happening is we're doing what's called a prehab. We are, our, te- our team and our network, they fix the house up to the minimal essential repairs are done. It can pass an inspection. It can go on market. And then they're finding a family that wouldn't be able to qualify for a traditional mortgage otherwise, which the stats on this one, Rebecca, astounded me. 51% of Americans can't get a mortgage because of either income or credit. So that's more than half the US can't get a home. And then so you think about like the American dream of home ownership, less people can own a home than those that can't. And so there's this really big market of people that because their income is 40 grand a year, and the mortgage payment's going to be higher than that, they're not able to get into a home. And the rent costs are skyrocketing. So it's like they're not really winning on rent either. And so there's this niche of people that if they could get into a home, they would, and the barrier is income and credit. So we have a house that cost us forty, fifty thousand to get into. We fix it up and then we sell or finance it to them for usually maybe twenty to thirty percent more than we paid. As an investor, I'm getting an immediate equity gain on the front ends. You know, I bought it for forty and I'm seller financing it for twenty five percent more day one. My note value is twenty five percent higher than my principal on the house was. So my net worth just climbed immediately by twenty five percent because of that increase in note value. My interest rate is going to be twelve percent over twenty years. And so I'm, I'm locking in, I'm going to make 12%. But the beautiful thing of it is, it's 12% of the seller finance value, not 12% of my principal. So I have 40 grand in this example, working like it's actually maybe 55 or 60 grand, yielding 12% off of that 55 or 60 grand. So my cap rate is super high compared to what I might see on a rental property. If I paid cash on a rental, I might make 8%. You know, and that's on a good one. So on this one, I'm making maybe 12 to 14% cap with an actual interest rate of 12. And so that's, that's kind of how I like to play that. The company we work with, we take what the after repair value would be. We actually mark that down a little bit. So we could sell it for more than 20 to 30. We sell it for that 20 to 30% more because we're going to leave typically maybe 10 or 15% of that after repair value for the family to actually have. And what that does is a couple of things. Um, it keeps them wanting to pay that mortgage because they don't want to walk away from five or 10 grand in equity that we gave them on the front end. When it comes down to you, do I find how to pay the five or $600 a month payment or do I give the house back and lose $10,000 in actual real equity? They're going to find a way to pay the five hundred, five or $600 a month. And so that's a great way to not only help the family because we've had just stories of uh, like earlier this year, a family bought a house with us through this program they paid, I think, 70000 And this is the actual family living in it. They sell their financer for 70000 A couple of years later, they sold it for, I think, one eighty. And they just like any bank and any mortgage, the payoff is they pay the bank off. They keep everything else in equity. So this was a family that prior to this couldn't get a mortgage. You know, Their credit was bad. They didn't have a lot of money and their life has been changed. And so as an investor, I love that part too. Like When you get into private lending, it can get weird because people can get kind of predatory with it. We're really big on the help part. Like every investment should make money. That's a level playing field. What are we doing beyond that? And so in this, we're taking properties that maybe don't look so great. We're fixing them up and improving a neighborhood. 
you know, we're taking a family that couldn't get housing, we're giving them not only housing, but we're giving them equity and we're giving them a good relationship with us. Like when someone gets, let's say they get a late payment, we're usually going to look at how can we help them out, not let's foreclose on them right away. You know, can we help them out with getting caught up for a few months? We've had investors, because here's the thing is the investors direct on the property. So it's not like you're in a fund. Like if I buy the property, my name is on the title to that family pays it off. If they're late and they have a missed mortgage payment, we've had investors that they're like, hey, it's Christmas time. Let's just tell them, don't worry about it. And so you have the leeway to do that. And then you also have the leeway where if it is a bad intention family and we need them out, then yeah, let's go ahead and evict and foreclose. So that's kind of what I like to do there. And I like to combine that with the sacred account so that I've got the money growing in the sacred account. I've got that equity gain on the initial seller finance value, and I've got that interest income and cash flow every month. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. 
netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. Wow, that's such an interesting approach. I'm wondering, have you always focused on the foreclosure instead of, I guess, that aspect? Because there's two ways that you could do real estate investing. You kind of go for the cheapest ones or some people think that's too much of a hassle. But I'm wondering maybe why you chose that strategy and you've always done it. I've kind of always liked that. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, the first one is it gives you some downside protection. A house that we buy on a bank foreclosure list for 35 grand can't get much worse than it already is. So if the economy comes down, this is not the house that you see it lost 30% in value. Like it kind of was at bottom value when you picked it up. So it gives you some downside protection. It also does give you scalability. Like I can get more units that way. And so with a, with a game like this, where I'm trying to get as many of these mortgage income streams as I can, I want to be in lots of states and lots of neighborhoods and lots of areas and spread out as much as I can and just kind of grow that as its own business or network. And I can do that much easier, 50,000 at a time with not having to go get a mortgage. I can just take cash from my sacred accounts and do it. Versus, you know, getting, uh, let's say a fourplex where I'm going to pay 800 grand and I've got to find a lender and go through closing. And it's this long, expensive process. I like to move quick. This allows me to do that. And then the other thing too is, you know, because of the fact that we're seller financing it, if I do have to take that house back, it's generally going to be worth more than I put it out for. And that's because, you know, the, it was bottom value. We did the prehab, but the family, when they move in, they actually are agreeing. We, we communicate to them and they're agreeing to, we're going to fix it up while we live there. And they get to keep whatever the equity gain is. So they're going to do carpets. They're going to paint. They're going to do all the stuff to make it their dream home. And so if a foreclosure does happen, I'm not getting the $35,000 house back. I'm getting the $70,000 house back that used to be 35, but now we've fixed it up and it looks nicer and a few years have transpired and it's appreciated. So I really like that aspect of it too. And then the other thing too is just from a macroeconomic standpoint, you know, like let's say we rewind back to 2020 and there was a period of time where, you know, you could only go to work if you were considered an essential worker. The guy that lives in this house that works at the gas station, he went to work and he earned income and he covered his mortgage and it didn't change for him. He didn't have the ups and downs with for this example, it was a pandemic. Other examples could be, you know, an economic recession. Usually, you know, that tier of income doesn't experience that. They're going to make the same wages regardless of what the stock market's doing and it doesn't impact their lives a lot. That's why I like that rather than the high end. When you go high end, there are pros to that, but also there's a lot more things that, that can be up and down and a lot more things you're exposed to just by nature of who's living there. You know, the houses are priced very high. They can come down quite a bit versus something like this. It is such an interesting approach. And I guess. I'm just thinking about this year where housing prices are at astronomical highs in cross, I guess it's mostly North America, but a lot of other places as well. Interest rates are so high. We're already kind of seeing housing prices come down a bit and it's expected that things are going to get bad. I'm wondering how you're approaching this strategy in this environment. Do you see this as as sad as it is? It's things are probably going to get really bad in the market. Do you see this as an opportunity for this strategy? I think I'm going to I'm looking at this from the standpoint of affordable housing is going to become more more demanded than it was before. And that's where people are going to go to is they're going to look at what's my payment. So when you look at a, a rent payment, you know, it, rents have climbed tremendously. And that's something that, you know, I don't think most people plan for. Mortgage interest rates have climbed up. The amount of house you can buy with the same mortgage now 
you know, if you look at the appreciation and the rates, it's you're not getting the same thing anymore. And it is a lot more expensive. So I think a lot of times people will climb into those things during an economic boom. They'll get into the expensive house. They get the expensive car. They do all this stuff because money is open and it's available and things are going well. And so as a recession happens, I think people will start tightening up. And so if they lose the house, they can look at, do I want to rent and pay probably what my mortgage payment was anyways, maybe a little bit less? Or do I want to look at something like this where I can get into a house and in my payments, five or 600 bucks a month, and that's half of what rent was. So I'm looking at that as an opportunity. And another thing too is you know the, the rates. Rates are starting to climb. And so when someone gets a mortgage, it's not the same rate as it was two years ago. And so when someone looks at a rate like this, 12% high, obviously, but the person doing this generally isn't going to be able to get that mortgage anyways. And that gap has narrowed down even more because generally rates have come up anyways. I think this is a great opportunity for that. I think just to kind of reverse this back a little bit, from a demand and supply standpoint, we're seeing that the supply is increasing too. Foreclosure numbers are increasing. We're seeing more and more properties coming available for us to be able to get. And if you think about it, they were climbing a little bit prior to the pandemic. During the pandemic, banks couldn't foreclose. You know, There was a freeze on that. And so just now, we're starting to see this backlog of people who didn't make their mortgage payments. They weren't able to stay on time and they just couldn't be foreclosed on during that period. That's starting to catch up. And then with what you're saying, just generally, the economy is going to get worse. I think that's going to add to it. I think the demand is going to be there and I think the supply is really going to be there too. That's really interesting. And I guess, how competitive is it to get these foreclosure units? Is it, are you ending up in kind of bidding wars or not necessarily? You can. It depends on how you go about this. I don't do any of this myself. We have a company we work with that does all of this for, for myself and for our clients. And they're international. They've got properties in over 30 states in the US, I think 34 states in the US and over 300 counties. And so they actually, they work with the banks directly. And they buy in bulk and they buy as is. So the banks love them. And so if there's a bidding war, you know, they're, they're going to look at, do I give it to Jerry Feta, who's looking to buy a couple homes? Or do I give it to the company where we work with is called Equity and Help? Do I give it to Equity and Help? And they're going to buy dozens of homes all at once. And so I work with them because they have that network and they, they have the infrastructure of the whole system too. They do the prehab, they list the home, they find the family, they manage the escrow. They evict the family, they put the new family in. So it really is a turnkey operation for me as an investor. All I have to do is decide which homes I like and sign off on things. So that takes some of the grit and some of the competition out of it. I have seen and I've I've known people that they do this themselves and you do have to show up at the auction and you do have to outbid someone. Then you do have to find a general contractor. And then you do have to find an escrow company and handle all of the payments and Sure, you might make a little bit less profit or a little bit more profit doing it yourself. But for me, it's a scale thing. You know, I want hundreds and thousands of these homes, not five or six or seven that I did all by myself and I made an extra percentage on because I did it myself. So that's kind of my thought on it and, and, and how to stay out of that competitive atmosphere and just make it more of a, a passive investment. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, I think the most daunting thing about the real estate space for someone who isn't already in it is that there's so many extra steps, hurdles, things that you need to be very active in the roles. You need to perhaps buy a property manager and find tenants. There's just so many extra things. Sometimes I think for private lending, you have to set up a corporation and get certain licenses. So there's a lot of things. But with your approach, then can anyone work with the company that you are with? or how does that work? 
So that's the beautiful thing about it. Anyone can work with them. They handle all of it. Even from the, like you mentioned, having to set up different businesses, every property that you buy is already owned by two different trusts. And so that gives you the business, but it also gives you the asset protection and the privacy. So when you buy a home, the home's owned by a land trust. The land trust is owned by a personal property trust. And so that basically puts two layers of anonymity between you and the actual house itself. It does give you here in the US a trust. You can have a bank account, a tax ID number. You could add an LLC to the mix. We just had a client where he had um, half a million dollars in a retirement account. He did a self-directed IRA and now his IRA owns 10 homes and it's going to pay him about five, six grand a month in passive income inside that IRA. It's very open-ended. You know, it is something that, that um, investors in the US can do, Canada can do. They're expanding in South America. I mean, really, because it's not a fund, you're actually physically buying real estate. There's not as much restriction on who can do it, when they can do it, what licenses they do or don't need, because anyone can go buy a house and anyone can do a seller finance contract. So I just want to walk back a little bit on that then. I'm just so interested in this. So when you have, or when you're interested in working with them, do you choose, do you just give them the money and then they go and invest in whatever units they do? And then they come back with you with propositions of which you're interested in, or how does that process work? The process is going to be, so as an investor, like, you know, the first deal I did, first thing is I wire money to escrow as proof of funds. And that kind of gives them an idea of like how much I'm looking to invest because it comes down to like how much do I have and what's the average unit going to cost. Let's say I wire, you know, the minimum is generally 150,000 and that's going to buy about three homes. And so I put that in escrow and then they actually take me home shopping online. They'll pull up the list of all the properties in inventory. They have a specialist that goes through and we look at all of the homes. Um, you know, we have a client that we recently helped do. They sold an Airbnb property. They had about a million dollars in profit and they wanted a 1031 exchange to tax defer the capital gain. So they could do a 1031 exchange into the seller finance properties with equity and help. So they had about a million dollars. That was about 20 homes. Our team got them connected up, equity and help sat with them every Saturday, I think for three weeks in a row till they found the right 20 properties. And they probably looked at maybe 40, right? And, and so they went through the inventory and they looked at pictures, they looked at neighborhoods, they looked at demographics, they looked at schools, nearby restaurants, it's all the things you would want to consider as a real estate investor, but it's right there digitally. And so it's kind of a fun, it's kind of a fun shopping experience, but it's also very convenient. They're on Zoom at home with coffee, picking out the real estate that they want to own. That's kind of what that process looks like. Once the homes are purchased, by the investor, then equity and help goes out and they find you know, the families that are going to live in those homes. And then it's a matter of fulfilling that passive income, you know, getting that actual escrow con- contract set up with the family and getting, getting the investor paid, which is another escrow. It's just passed through. The investor gets the income and they do with that income what they want at that point. I guess, what are the risks with this strategy? Would it be that if, I guess, the tenant doesn't pay or anything, I guess, what would be the risks to the investor's return? So risks, the initial one is vacancy. We are buying a house that's initially unoccupied. And so, and this is why, you know, the minimum is three homes, 150,000 is, is if you have three, it diversifies you out of that rather than I bought one and it took nine months to occupy it. When I have that home vacant, there are going to be some utilities and holding costs. So that's usually, you know, maybe one to two grand total that I would have in reserves just as an investor to cover maybe five or six months of utilities and different things that are going to be naturally occurring costs with the home until the family moves in and takes it all over. So that's probably the first thing is vacancy. Obviously, you know, foreclosure risk is is one. 
with the portfolio itself, um, I think their lifetime foreclosure rate is about 7%. So they keep it pretty low. That's within a normal range of what you would probably even see on a good managed rental portfolio, usually 10% or less on, on actual vacancy. But when vacancy happens, you know, you have, you have a foreclosure and that is a risk that can also be a little bit of an expense if you have move out costs, things of that nature. So that's something to consider. Those are probably the biggest two. There's not a lot of other risk involved because it just is a matter of we have the home, the family lives there, they make the payment, we have an agreed upon interest rate. And so just as how long did it take to get the family there? And then did they actually make the payment on agreed? And if they didn't, how long did it take to move them out and put a new family in? And then you also mentioned that you do renovations. And so is that the investor's capital also used to do those renovations? No. So that's what I love about that. That's done by the time I bought the property. So as an investor, the price I'm paying and looking at it, you know, I want this home and it costs me 48 grand, for example, the prehabbing has already been done. And that's something that's taken care of ahead of time. So I'm buying a finished product and I can just go right on market and be, be sold to the family. Okay, that's good. Because I was wondering if you had to then wait for several months, maybe while the property was being revamped. But that is really, really interesting. And so I guess I'm wondering to kind of close things out today, what are you most excited about for 2023? Or where do you see the greatest opportunities in the market or any strategies you want to share of what you're doing in this year? I mean, for me, it really is going to be doubling down on my business and, and growing that. I think you know, when a, when a recession happens, generally speaking, as a business owner, that's when talent becomes available. And so that's something that I'm looking at is hiring, marketing. I think, you know, during this period of time, things are going to get rocky. And so for the average listener, I would say focus on increasing your income more than ever. Recession is a macro thing, but the word economy, and I told you I liked words, the root of this word economy actually means personal household. Just because the macro has a recession does not mean that my personal household has to as well. So and that looks like putting in more hours, making more sales, whatever your thing is to earn income, adding more value. I think that that's going to be the number one opportunity. And it also keeps you kind of out of the doom and gloom. You know, there's a lot of news and just stuff that it's negative and it doesn't help. I would say that that's probably the main thing I'm focused on. And then I'm focused on obviously, you know, kind of the triangle of wealth itself increasing my savings rate as a result of that, getting more homes as a result of that. And it kind of ties back to what we said at the beginning. This is why I like the way I do it and I don't do stocks. My plan doesn't change. If the, if the economy is doing well, my plan is the same thing. If the economy is doing poor, my plan is the same thing. Just because it's not really tied to that so much. It's more of a function of how much can I earn? How much can I save? And then how many homes can I get? I love it. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on again today. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you, your work, and everything that you do? Thank you. So we have a book I'd like to give away. And I think we might have did this last time, but um, same one. It's jerryfetta.com forward slash B2F promo. And maybe we could put that in the show notes. But that's going to have a lot of the information we covered and some. And so that's a, a free thing we like to give away. And that's a great way to not only connect with us, but also to get more information on like what some of these strategies are, get a little bit more detail on how they work and start learning how to apply them. So that's, that's a great way to connect. Uh, we're also very active on TikTok and Instagram. So just at Jerry Feta, you know, you can connect with us. We love answering DMs. If you have questions, send a message. We actually had several of your listeners reach out on DMs that just said, Hey, I listened to the show. I had questions about this, this and this. And so we were able to help with that as well. So reach out, connect. We're always going to help out and, and do whatever we can. That's amazing. Thank you so much again, Jerry. 
Thank you for having me on. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.